0: invite you to turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 24. Sometimes in the book of Acts, since it's a historical narrative, um, it lends itself to different formats. Things will be a little bit different this morning uh, as we handle Paul before Felix, Governor Felix. You'll recall where he's been just by way of brief review in chapter 23, when he was before the council and he knew that he wasn't going to get a fair hearing because the high priest who it turns out historically is a very vicious, mean-spirited high priest who has Paul straight away slapped, punched, sucker punched for, in his view, lacking respect Lysias, of course, the tribune had called together the council to try to determine what the what the charges were. The Romans struggle, I'm sure, as it is, to understand uh, the laws of Judaism. And um, the mob had taken over, and Paul had rescued Paul, uh Lysias had rescued Paul, of course, from the mob, and Paul addressed them and didn't get very far, so he The next day brought him or brought him into the barracks that night. And the next day he called the council to come in an informal way. And Paul was addressing the council in an informal way, saying, look, brothers, and uh, it didn't take much more out of his mouth to warrant in an Ananias or Ananias, excuse me, uh, view to have him punished there on the spot realizing that he went to what maybe we can assume was a plan B, which was to just kind of throw a bomb in the room to end the whole conversation with regard to any defense that might be fairly made otherwise. And that is, he mentioned the fact of his belief in the resurrection, his uh, uh, self-identification as a Pharisee, and that of course stirred up the Sadducees over the issue of the resurrection and the whole thing again exploded and so he was rescued from that once again from the tribune brought into Antonia Fortress the barracks there to be safe and then we become aware of something that follows after that's rather interesting in terms of God's providence we looked at this last time the providence of God making Paul's nephew aware that there was a plot now there was actually 40 zealous men who had taken a vow that they would neither eat nor drink until the apostle Paul was dead. So these men are dead serious, to say the least. And so he was able to share that with Paul and were struck by the amazing bit of providence there that Paul's nephew would happen to become aware of this plot. And so he told Paul and Paul just said, listen, um, tell the centurion that you need to go talk to the tribune. And share this story with him. He does. The tribune has a deal of, a measure of respect for Paul. And so he still, without, he could be in very much trouble with the emperor, with the Roman government, if he doesn't find legitimate charges against this man. You can't just beat somebody to death in the streets, it's not allowed in their efforts to keep the peace. And that's his main assignment as the Chiliarch, as the uh, uh, one responsible for the entire garrison that's protecting uh, Jerusalem. And so he is made aware of this. The centurion takes his nephew to uh, him to talk to him, and he makes a plan immediately right there on the spot. He writes a letter to Governor Felix, and he writes it at the end of chapter 30, uh, 23, rather, verse 23 and following, Where he is pretty much apprising him of what's going on, he massaged the word, he wordsmithed a little, he kind of massaged the words, making himself sound more noble. I rescued Paul and so on. So we covered that last time. So he's we ended there where with his letter to the governor, and here's where we pick up before we enter into chapter. 24. We're going to finish up with the end of 23 verse 31 and following. We'll pray and then we'll move forward. Verse 31 of 23. So the soldiers, according to their instructions, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. And you'll remember that what Lysias had decided to do is muster up 200 uh, foot soldiers, 200 spearmen, essentially that's his infantry, 400 men, and 700, or I'm sorry, 70 on horseback, including uh, giving Paul his own uh, ride as well. He had his own horse and sending them uh, and to get, provide the safety till he can get him to the Governor Felix in Caesarea. So he goes on here, and on the next day, they returned to the barracks, letting the horsemen Go on with him. When they had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they presented Paul also before him. On reading the letter, he asked what province he was from. And when he learned that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive and commanded him to be guarded in Herod's praetorium. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this ongoing Story. It's really seamless. We, because we are a subject to time that you've given us as a context and you set us in, we must put in chapter breaks and verse breaks. And so, but this is an ongoing, unbroken work that you're doing through Paul. And so we thank you, Lord, as we're learning sequentially through this record of the history of the founding of the church, as you have gone to be with the Father, O Lord, you have sent your Spirit, and now we see the outworking of the Spirit in those who believe. And so, Lord, we pray that by your same Spirit, that we would be illuminated to the truths that you would have made known to us. So I ask, Lord, that you grant me accuracy and efficiency in the economy of words used, effectiveness in those words, O Lord, so that you might be glorified in the retelling of this story in the preaching of your word this i ask in jesus name amen so all along we've seen i want to get we want to look at some preliminary things and then i want to touch on a topic that is another observable topic these these historical narratives that we have from the book of acts aren't doctrinally heavy they're not as the Pauline epistles are heavy with rich doctrines that we can park on and go deep, and we should. These this is a history book. That's its genre, that's its category. And so we're reading a history. We're reading a travelogue of the Apostle Paul as he's planting church around churches around the Mediterranean. And so We want to be careful to observe the things that do emerge. However, it's not as though there aren't things that we can't benefit from. And so that's why we parked on providence last week, that extended introduction that helped us understand the importance of believing in and embracing the providence of God, different but connected to sovereignty, his absolute right as creator and as El Elyon, the God most high above all gods. He has the absolute right and authority, but he is also that El Shaddai. He is the omnipotent one whose power is without measure. So he is not only has the right to do these things, that is to establish the providence among the things that he's created and set into motion. He's got the power to do it and he will do it. He will do all things according to His will, as Ephesians 1 and verse 11 reminds us. And so we want to observe something else this morning that I believe is important, and it relates to something that two weeks ago I mentioned as an important topic, since there aren't, as I said, doctrines per se being given to us from as we are from a Pauline epistle, there are things that are important, nevertheless, that do emerge and with Paul, you'll remember two weeks ago it, we we discovered the importance that he placed on a good conscience that 's what started him out before Ananias. You recall that's part of what got him punched is because Paul made the claim i i 'm brothers, I have a good conscience." Why would he lead with that? So we parked on that and discussed the importance of keeping a clear conscience. This morning's topic will be related to that. And here's how I want to approach it. I want to approach it this way. By asking you once again, as I've typically appro- approached this, this, this narrative, these historical events and observed the composure of Paul, his demeanor, he's unflappable. He's unshakable. And I want that, don't you? Because we don't know what events will befall us next providentially, right? So... We're looking at his demeanor. We're looking because what we've been given is a historical record. We're observing Paul. We're seeing how he's responding to things. And so we marvel at God giving him the grace to be able to remain well composed before his audience, regardless of who the audience is or what they're trying to do to him. Whether they're trying to stone him to death, beat him to death, lock him up, kill him. It's really quite impressive. This last event, though, is pretty formidable, I would say. I think you would agree. Now, there's a zealousness. No, there's a vow. We're going to kill him. We won't eat or drink until he's dead. And it's not just one guy. It's not just this loosely discomfited Mob that's picking up rocks. Folks, this is getting serious. There's 40 men who have taken this vow. And you know how serious vow taking was in Judaism, especially among those illustrious religious ones. They took this very seriously. But he's still writing on chapter 23 and verse 11. I, I love the six different ways, the five different ways, whatever that number is, it's five or six times the Lord comes in at exactly the moment that Paul needs him to. He gives him a vision. He speaks to Paul. And and you remember in chapter 23 and verse 11, the following night, the Lord stood by him and said, take courage, for as you have testified To the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. For Paul, that's it. It's a mandate. More than that, it's a divine mandate. You must get to Rome. That would be tantamount to saying, Paul, you will be there. I will see to it. Wouldn't you like words like that? You've got them, but for you and I, they may not include a vision. They include something else. Trust. Faith. And what he's called you to. Right? So this is what undergirds Paul we're able to see it because God was pleased to put it in his eternal record those times that he stands up where Paul's ready to quit in Corinth for instance in chapter 18 and that's it I'm done with you he's he's had his last synagogue I'm going to the Gentiles he was about to stop giving the 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 gospel to those that he loves that's why he's so upset he loves the Jews but they keep rejecting him and I'm done with you I'm done I'm not coming back Lord goes to him that night, you remember? Don't stop, Paul. Don't be silent. If you'll allow me some license. You are my voice box. I am with the Father now. Your body is my temple. Your members, that includes the vocal cords, are the members of whom? Of Christ, he later writes to the Corinthian church in chapter 6, right? In 1 Corinthians 6. So he does this for him. But why? I'm wondering as I'm in my study, and I'm, you know, week after week, it's been month after month. This has been a couple of years now looking at this. Of course, the first 12 chapters are all Peter, right? And then we pick up with Paul and Paul takes over. And now it's all been about Paul and all of the things that happened to Paul since his conversion in chapter nine. And it's just been a, there's been a whole lot there. I'm sure a lot of blessing in terms of a number of people as he goes that are being saved, but I'm struck by his his perseverance, aren't you? My goodness, he keeps going. And how many of us might have fallen away long before this with this kind of not only rejection, but violence against us, misunderstanding. How many times can you be misjudged and still carry on? It's hard, isn't it? It is. I want to know because I happen to think that things are getting darker in these days and in our times. Would you agree? So I want to know because I want to be a faithful witness. That's what he's called me to be. That's what he's called you and I to be. Yeah, a witness. What does a witness do? A witness speaks. A witness talks. They don't withhold. A witness proclaims the gospel. Speak is an imperative in Ephesians 4.15. Speak. Then he gives us the content, the truth. And then he gives us the tone and the tenor and the motive of your heart in what? In love. Right. So this is Paul and he just keeps going. Well, why so many encounters by contentious, zealous, vicious, even violent oppressors? Why? Well, we learn from the uh, historians that they viewed Christianity as seditious, right? It's seditious to begin with. It's a number of not good sounding words. In other words, we stir things up, we, we turn things upside down, we cause riots. That's what they're accusing Paul of. And we'll see that in the narrative. He's, they're essentially accusing him, Tertullus, their speaker their attorney, as we get to that part of the text, who's there with that same high priest, Ananias, that had Paul punched, they're there now. Seditious, inciting people to rebel against authority, whether that's religious or it's governmental. That's what they're accusing Paul of. Now, I want you to listen to these kind of charges because I think that we're, we're gaining that same perception in our time uh, you're you're going against accepted norms you're going against science that for many of us has become a religion you 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 you're turning things upside down that's what they're accusing Paul of in the case of Judaism Their religion, in the case of the Roman government, their effort to keep the peace, you're going against something bad here, and that's the opinion that they had toward Christians. Also that they're subversive, they're not only seditious, they're subversive, which has the idea of undermining the power of the authority, whatever the ruling authority is, whether it's religious or it's secular. So seditious and subversive, you're, you're upending the ruling authorities by way of contradiction, by strict definition of the term. You're contradicting what the government is saying. Oh, that won't happen to us, will it? You're contradicting what science says. Who are you people? You think that's far away? Paul's got my attention. Acts has my attention. And there's a reason that an old historic history of the founding of the church has eternality to it. It has life. It's alive because it's the principles are timeless. So seditious. You're not only that, you're subversive. You're also sacrilegious. You're you're extremely disrespectful toward something that somebody holds dear, is what that means. That's, that's what they're charging with Paul with in terms of, of course, in this case, Judaism. It's an, it's an action that causes deep offense. Of course, we're not experiencing that yet, are, are we? You see? Sedition, subversion, Sacrilege. Of course, in Paul's case, sectarianism, right? The sectarianism. He belongs to, to that sect. That was a an absolute verbatim. It was forbidden in Judaism. Making something removed from Judaism. And Paul's about to say, you'll see in his defense, uh, that's not what I'm doing. We don't see him going through. Revealing the gospel in terms of telling his conversion story again. I want you to mark that. What he's doing here is he's simply defending himself and he's got one thing with him. He's got one weapon of defense. Just one. This is the last 10 years of his life, folks. These journeys. These three missionary journeys. 10 years. Ultimately, close to 10,000 miles when it's all said and done in his travels, mainly on foot, some by ship, but mainly on foot. I always try to imagine how I would be at that particular point. He's been giving the gospel for thousands of miles and over now years. And what's happened right now is, because you see things mounting. do you see things escalating here? In terms of the formidability of the attempt to kill him, he's up against the lie coming at him full force. The lie, of course, is unleashed against what? Go ahead, say it truth let's get used to saying it that is the single weapon that paul has as he stands before every tribunal every governmental system or religious system whoever he has to answer to as an authority or whether it's a mob whether it's a synagogue what do you go there with bows and arrows swords and shields an entourage that's armed? What'd he go there with? Is he wearing a coat of mail equivalent to our Kevlar vests? Love is what? Thank you, louder. Love in the Bible is vulnerable. Why? Because you're a truth teller. Because you represent the truth. You speak the truth. And does that not make you vulnerable? Yes, but some Christians, they don't want to be vulnerable like that in their love. I'll give them a try. I'll do different things, but I, I'm not necessarily going to always speak the in love. No. And that's all Paul ever did. That is his single weapon. And we learn, of course, from Ephesians 6 that that's a very important piece of the armor that we're given. His coat, his, his uh, breastplate of righteousness, of course, is his clear conscience. We talked about how important that is. This is what he comes with. And it's not even a broad, I won't want the broadsword. You're facing a crowd, you want the broadsword, folks. You want that six-forter that takes two hands that you get going swinging above your head and you take out whole rows of people if you need to. It's a machaira. It's a small, close up, it's the short dagger, six to 18 inches, the Roman soldier has next to him. That's the word that's used in Ephesians 6. It's it's the machaira, it's the small for precise work. And that's how he uses the Word of God. That's how he uses the truth. Precisely. So you don't just blather things out. That's not wise. It might not even be loving the way you you blurt out the truth. It's because you speak it in love that tempers what you say, when you say it, how you say it, to whom you say it. That's Paul. No more... Wonderful story about the Damascus Road. Eh, this is different. He's, he's different. But the, but the weapon is always the same. I will not go before anyone, no matter how much it might save my skin, as we would say, if it requires me to lie or even withhold truth or even compromise in any way to please those that I might stand before. He won't do it. So what I'm getting to for our introductory topic this morning before we go into the text is the, the imperative we need we have right now for the truth. Have you been having difficulty finding the truth lately? It's going to get more and more difficult. As a matter of fact, often when truth shows up, in these electronic forms that we have to see it. Oh, that's true. It disappears. It's vaporized. Where did it go? I don't know. And we just move on. Do you realize what will continue to happen? Who will stand for the truth? Who will be left standing to be a voice for him who is the truth? What lengths would we go to? I want you to listen to something this is this is twenty seven hundred years ago that this was written through a prophet named Isaiah. I want you to you tell me if you think if you think, and I want you to be honest, you have to be truthful with me now now that we 've talked about this. <laughs> if this does not apply to our time, just please be be kind, will you but tell me say you know i don 't really see that applying now. listen to this. This is Isaiah. 59, 12 to 15. Jude, Jude Judah's being indicted here. For our transgressions are multiplied before you and our sins testify against us. For our transgression, our transgressions are with us and we know our iniquities. Here they are transgressing and denying the Lord and turning back from following God, speaking oppression and revolt, Conceiving and uttering from the heart lying words. Justice is turned back and righteousness stands afar off. For truth has stumbled in the public squares and uprightness cannot enter. Truth is lacking and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. P-R-E-Y. Is that not true? You still going to tell the truth? the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help you God? Are you? I appreciate your hesitancy. That's sincere. We won't know until that time comes, will we? I like to think I would, but then again, so did a man named Peter. I want to read what Edward Young said about this passage, listen to this, over and over again the people transgress as though God were not present. (laughs) But all is done before him, for there is no escape from his all-seeing eye. And as far as the religious among us, he goes on, the people in their worship professed to believe in the Lord, but in deed and thought they have fallen from him. Their worship gives out gives an outward show of being directed to God, but in reality is idolatry. And henceforth, falsehood. You know, we've, we've said the meaning of the Scripture is the Scripture. If you don't have the accurate meaning of the Word, you don't have the Word. It's the same with worship. If you're not worshiping, worshiping the God of this book faithfully, you're an idolater. Am I wrong? Tell me if I'm wrong. He finishes, the acts of their worship are lies. In this case, of our passage in the context against the Holy One of Israel, end quote. This is Judah, and there's a reason this is permanently in God's Word for us. The psalmist wrote in Psalm 12, 1 to 2, Save, O Lord, for the godly one is gone. For the faithful have vanished from among the children of man. Everyone utters lies to his neighbor. With flattering lips and double heart they speak. Isn't it the temporary nature of the lie and the eternality of the truth? This is Proverbs twelve nineteen. Truthful lips endure forever. But a lying tongue is but for a moment. No, I thought about that. And I thought, well, at least for me, that makes sense. Because lies are a vapor. They're they're a mist. They're a counterfeit that floats for a while. Truth has substance. Truth has substance enough to remain how long? Forever. That's right. And so we have these mists that move through. They're like the clouds that seem to take on sh- different shapes of things and then they, then they morph and transform into other things. That's, that's what the lying lips are. We live in a sea of that. The truth is piercing. The truth is never changing. The truth is transformative. The truth is who God is. So every word that he speaks is true. And he came as a man. And every word that he spoke was true. For God is a God of truth. He cannot lie. Titus 1 verse 2 tells us that. It's impossible. He, in the case of Christ, he's the embodiment of truth, as I said. He can't lie. Mankind is fallen. And so he fell because he took a deliberate departure from truth, didn't he? Chose to embrace the first doubt ever planted in that first human experiment, if you'll indulge me. Indeed. (laughs) As God said, I mean, really? Really? You people sound so old-fashioned. You sound so out of date. Is that really what he said? We've got people that have learned that it's not quite as bad as you make it sound. We we embrace grace. You're not going to take all of the Word of God, are you? God promised to pierce the darkness of the spiritual depth and deception that permeates this fallen planet. He promised, and He did. Here's the promise. Psalm 57, verse 3 in the NAS says, He will send from heaven and save me. He reproaches him who tramples upon me. God will send forth his loving kindness and his truth. And like a great shaft of light piercing through the dark clouds and right down into mankind, he brings the truth. And the truth showed up. Aren't you happy? Here he is. John one fourteen, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory. That Shekinah light showed up as a man. Glory as of the only son from the Father filled with two things and you know what they are. Grace and truth. Praise God. The Lord, the enemy of this world, the God of this world, as he's also called, the prince of the power of the air, is a deceiver, John eight forty four. 44. Jared, Jesus clarifies that for us. He's a liar. He was a liar from the beginning, and he continues to lie, and he continues to foment. He's the progenitor of all lies. He's a liar. He can't possibly come up with a truth because there is no truth in him, just like God can't lie because is only truth in him. That's the battle. Paul knows that. He knows that the moment he tries to manipulate something or massage it a little bit so it's a little bit better way to frame his story, he avoids it all. He's clever. We've looked at that, haven't we? He's very wise. You want to look at strategy in terms of witnessing? Go back over these defenses as we've gone through them. It's amazing. It just depends on who he's talking to, what the circumstances are. So it's not like he doesn't just, like I said, it's not just like, a, like an air horn. He doesn't blow out the truth without any thought. It's not like that at all. John 18, much later on, when Jesus is standing before Pilate, For this purpose I was born. Now, does that get your attention? It gets mine. What is it? I was born for this purpose. He says it again. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world. Because Pilate's trying to figure out who he is. And here's what Jesus says. This is why I've come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. That's it. And Paul knows that. So all he bears witness to is the truth. Now, these things are not true that I'm charged with. Even Lysias, to protect himself, sort of massage the letter a little bit, right? It isn't exactly how it happened, right? Tertullus is going to do the same thing. He's it's actually hard to get through his flattery. With Felix, right? It's like, oh. And if that repulses you, that's a good sign. <laughs> I'm good. I'm glad I'm not the, you, were, you were repulsed too. It's like, oh come on, please stop, right? Just stop. So for this purpose, I was born. For this purpose, he showed up, right? Philippians 2 5 to 8. The kenosis. He left his majestic place by the Father and became a man. A man, every bit a man, 100% a man, while still 100% what? God. The hypostatic union, another one that's like, don't ask me how he does. That's 200% to me, which doesn't make sense. That is bad science. That's God. To bear witness to the truth, and that's why... David finally gets it in Psalm 51 in his great confessional psalm there he said he gets it now after being broken after Nathan had to go in and say you are the man and now he's broken and you can read Psalm 32 and Psalm 38 in that regard but but with Psalm 51 as his confession behold you delight in truth you delight in truth where in the inward parts that's so important that's so important So it's not just that we are to speak the truth, we are, all Ephesians 4.15, but it is that we are to be truthful people, you see? You're to be truthful by character, now that's Paul. It's not what truths are convenient to get my agenda going. I'm going to be entirely truthful here, and that's Vulnerable. It's not gullible. As a matter of fact, people of God ought to be the wisest people on the planet, yeah? But it's vulnerable. Psalm 15, 1-2. This is how we can find out that the people we've been describing, truthful people, are going to be invited into the Lord's company. Psalm 15, Verse 1 to 2, O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? Here he is. He who walks blamelessly and does what is right, that's the clear conscience part, and speaks truth, period. Louder. Ah. You see? God wants you to be a truthful person. He doesn't want to leave you with a bunch of truth information that you can manage and mismanage and craft and and cobble together to make your own story or your own narrative. That truth, we don't have that prerogative. We're not allowed, we don't have license to take bits of truth to cobble it together and make some sort of Frankenstein out of it that has nothing to do with what God wants. God wants you to be a truthful person, truth in the inward parts where it counts. Because that's where his glory dwells. The glory that's supposed to be manifest through you and I, and it's only manifest through you and I when we are truthful people. That's Paul's single-fold weapon. That's it, right here, a machaira. He'll take on the captain of the temple guard. He'll take on whomever. He'll take on Lysias and his 1,000 garrison of Roman soldiers. He'll take on the spearmen. He'll take on the chariots, the horsemen. It doesn't make any difference with that one thing, truth. Because of what we talked about last week, God's, who's with me? Providence, very good. Providence, because of God's providence. So if you embrace what we've talked about last week and put it together here, he can speak that way because of what did we learned last week. It's the providence of God. You see, the fact is, folks, that, God, that Paul understood his immortality until Christ said, Your witness for me is done. You must get to Rome. Oh, all right. Well, now I can stand before whomever and speak the truth. You don't speak the truth, the deal's off. Yeah? Speak the truth, trust him. With regard to Psalm 15 in this principle we're talking about, Thomas Boston said, To the speaking of truth, listen to this carefully now. It's Puritan, you've got to listen carefully, right? To the speaking of truth, it is necessary our words agree with our mind and thoughts about the thing. We must speak as we think, and our tongues must be faithful interpreters of our mind, Otherwise, we lie, not speaking what we think. That's a bit of a tough sell in the genteel South, yeah? It's like we don't say anything negative. I mean, we, you know it's wonderful politeness. But maybe I should, instead of worrying about being polite, maybe if I'm not really thinking that way, maybe, maybe, since this mouth doesn't belong to me, it's been purchased by Jesus Christ, maybe I just need to be, what, quiet. Maybe I just need to be quiet. Because the fact is, when pride composes our words, it causes us to conceal what we really think. I.e., we lie. Because we're not truthful in what we actually know, what we actually believe, what we actually think. And we lie, like the father of all lies. We're more like, we're taking up Satan's agenda more than when than we are Christ's. If you want to see the contrast, look at the difference in our text between the respect, the proper respect that the apostle Paul shows and this fawning, uh, this this false flattery that Tertullus gives. First one of chapter 24 after five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus. They laid before the governor their case against Paul. And when he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, Since he's speaking to Felix now, right? Since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, Reforms are being made for this nation. In every way and everywhere, we accept this with gratitude. But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us. And this is funny. Briefly. Now, I don't know, maybe it's the time I spent in New York City, but that is clearly some schmoozing right there. It's disingenuous at the least. This is this is a lie. This Felix, by the way, this his name is Marcus Antonius Felix, according to the historians. Tacitus, as well as Josephus, give his name. This he was he was a, a rogue. He's he was a former slave that only got this position through his brother Pallas, P-A-L-L-A-S. Pallas was a former slave that Emperor Claudius really favored. And so through his brother, he got this gig. He is now governor. He worked his way up a little bit, but he's now governor of Judea. So here's what Tacitus wrote. Unrest increased under his rule. For listen to this: with savagery and lust, he exercised the powers of a king with the disposition of a slave. End quote. He was merciless when he crushed opposition. He's the he's the governor who crushed the four thousand that was led by the Egyptian. You remember when Lysias the tribune said to Paul, "Aren't are you aren't you the Egyptian that escaped?" When the four thousand were killed in the uprising, you remember that? It was Felix that did that. He keeps the peace, all right, but by crushing the opposition. What what did one writer said? It just one writer said um, he creates a desert and calls it peace. <laughs> You know, he clear cuts the forest and says, now it's peaceful. He strikes people down. That's Felix. So this is this opening by their spokesman, this Tertullus, who could be a Roman, could be a Hellenistic Jew. We don't really know. This was a very common uh, name in the Roman kingdom, so we don't have any more information on him actually. So Paul speaks, we can understand why Paul speaks of his good conscience. He's sincere. He's truthful. He retains his integrity because it's integrity that gives you strength. That's Paul. So I always, he said in 24, verse 16, I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. Jesus is said to be in Revelation 3.14, the faithful and true witness. Paul was a faithful witness of the truth. And that's who we're to be. We're to continue that witness. Zechariah 8.16-17, these are the things that you shall do. Speak the truth to one another. Render in your gates judgments that are true and make for peace Do not devise evil in your hearts against one another and love no false oath. For all these things I hate, declares the Lord. These false witnesses, of course, he says in Proverbs, doesn't he? That's an abomination to him. Giving false witness, bearing a false witness. Do we give that much thought when we're having to bear witness in some situation? We should, shouldn't we? Ephesians 4.25, therefore put away falsehood. Let each of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Colossians 3.9, do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. Revelation 21, verse 8 is startling and should get our attention. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars. Their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Truth doesn't dismiss a person's experience in life. You need to understand that it illuminates it. It explains it. Scripture helps me understand my experience. That's why we're training ourselves to be biblical disciples, right? Biblical counselors. So it doesn't dismiss a person's experience. It illuminates it. it. It made sense out of my life, a pretty chaotic life. And maybe you say the same thing. That's, the only thing. That's how imperative it is. So therefore, eternal, unchanging standard of truth is needed in order to validate our experience. Okay, I'm going to pick up on the text here again. So we have Tertullus' opening here. Verse 5. Here's the prosecution's charge. For we have found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots, that's sedition, among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader among the sect of the Nazarenes this is the only place that term is used for Christians a sect of the Nazarene so you're sectarian that is absolutely forbidden in Judaism that's the second charge he even tried to profane the temple that would be the most serious charge that's sacrilege right he tried to profane the temple but we seized him did they or did they shout, there he is, let's get him, <laughs> and try to beat him to death? Yeah, that's actually what they did. Look at how people take words and cast a whole different narrative to what actually happened. I'm so glad we don't have to suffer that, <laughs> right? And, and they can it can be clever too, can it? Uh, it can be absolutely brilliant how people turn... <laughs> No naming names in here, brother. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Yeah, it's <laughs> right. <laughs> so he even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him by. Now, I want to stop here and have somebody. If you have the ESV, would you read verse seven for me? No, you don't have it. If you... Are you a wise guy? There's no verse seven, you know why? And that's why I have two Bibles up here. Is the Western text, which takes a, a little bit of an expansion on things. That's why it's not typically the most orthodox. The Western Western text of Scripture. It was uh, held by Western Europe. It doesn't mean you know it was held by people in Texas. And it it it's more of a paraphrase that helps get to the meaning they thought and they embraced it. So for most part you'll have a little footnote for it. But in this case, I agree with those who have left it in. I think it should be left in with a bracket because otherwise Tertullus his 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 um accusation doesn't make much sense. Listen to how it uh says includes the end of verse 6 and also verse 7. And the first half of verse 8. Listen to this. This is the NAS. So verse 6. And he even tried to desecrate the temple. And then we arrested him. We wanted to judge him according to our own law. But Lysias the commander came along. And with much violence took him out of our hands. Ordering his accusers to come before you. End bracket. By examining him yourself concerning all these matters. You would be able to ascertain the things of which we accuse him. So if, if that verse is missing, he's talking about who? He's not talking about Lysias. Who's he talking about? Paul. Well, what would Paul say if, if you questioned him? He's about to question him. What's he going to say? It's not true, right? So they spun a different story. This makes Sense then, at least according to the Western text, and again, I, I wouldn't put it in there permanently. Some have the um, ESV completely omits it, and I think that's unfortunate. But you do have it footnoted there, and it makes more sense. Went back and forth over this issue, and it clearly makes sense. The uh, FF Bruce said on this regard: the tone of the Western edition is so thoroughly in accord with the rest of Tertullus's speech that one is inclined to accept it as genuine. So you can take more than my word for it. Um, Also, the NAS has it in brackets. So it was brought into the Textus Receptus, which is the received text, which was the text for which version? King James. So it's in the King James. It's in the New King James. It's not anywhere in the NIV, but it's, it's included in the new King James the King James and the American Standard Version and then of course the new American Standard Version has it in brackets. So I'm going to be preaching through this as though it make it has legitimacy because it makes more sense. They're trying to tell a different story here you need and it would also explain why uh, later on in the verse uh, Felix. Ends the session by saying, "We'll wait until Lysias gets here." So they've ordered; they're ordering Lysias to come. That makes sense. The Tribune, right? So let me read it again, verse six. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. We wanted to judge him according to our own law. See, that's a lie, isn't it? Is that what they were trying to do? No, they were trying to beat him to death. But Lysias, the commander, came along with much violence, took him out of our hands, ordering his accusers to come before you. By examining him, and I would say that he's referring to Lysias. By examining him yourself concerning all these matters, you will be able to ascertain the things of which we accuse him. They came by violence to take him away from a fair trial by the Jews? Uh Uh-uh. He was receiving no fair trial by the Sanhedrin. He was being tried and found guilty by a mob. And what did the religious ones do? Remember, they just closed the gate. Accused of, oh, bringing Gentiles in here? Slam the gate. Well, they're going to murder this guy. Okay, well, just get it out of here, will you? Don't get blood on the floor of the temple in here take him out in the court of the Gentiles and beat him to death. It's just ghastly. But all the lies that are fraught through all of Paul's journeys, but here it just gets thicker and thicker and thicker. And all he ever does, all you and I should ever do is stand on the truth because the truth has a name. His name is Jesus Christ. He is the way the truth, and the life. We will have to uh, finish this passage. I want to get prepared for uh, communion. Let me just close our time at this point with Psalm 86, verse 11 to 13. Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. I give thanks to you, O Lord, with my whole heart, and I will glorify your name forever, for great is your steadfast love toward me. You have delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for these rich truths and for helping us to develop discernment regarding uh, sometimes difficult texts that get all the more difficult because of the lies that are featured by those who would spawn evil by those who have vicious murder in their hearts. Help us Lord to be as Paul had said, clear in conscience to have a good conscience as he himself had. So we can stand in those times We're not called to argue with people. We're not called to become great debaters. We are simply to answer the lie with the truth. Because then you show up. So we thank you, O Lord, and pray that you would bless this time now as we prepare our hearts to receive Holy Communion. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.